as we've prayed to hear from the Lord, I'd, I'd like for us to pray once more and ask him for his help uh, that we would have understanding. So if you would pray once more with me, please. Father, we pray for the hearing of your word, Lord, that we would not do so with hard, impenetrable hearts, but Lord, with soft and malleable hearts. Lord, we ask that your spirit would give understanding and turn our eyes to our Messiah, Jesus, and Lord, that we would have the veil removed that we would increase in glory from one degree to the next by beholding our Lord Jesus. That you would accomplish this by the power of your Spirit. And Lord, you would do so for the glory of your beautiful name, not for our sake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how many of us have ever thought, or perhaps maybe even heard somebody say, you know, the God of the Old Testament just appears to be angry and upset. Just sort of having these fly-off-the-handle moments. But, you know, when we get to the God of the New Testament, he's, well, he's different. He's, he's a God of love and compassion. The, the God of the New Testament is all forgiveness and second chances. It seems like God has just changed in his disposition in the way that he would relate to the world. You know, someone might perhaps suggest that Christians, then, we should maybe skillfully and subtly unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. But is that an option for God's people? I don't think it is a viable solution. I think we would be vastly underserved as God's people if we were to try to make such an effort. In fact, I think as we go through the book of Nahum today, that we'll see that the God who reveals himself in the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. And yet, what we'll also see is that the God who reveals himself in the Old Testament is also unfolding his revelation. It's, it's increasing in clarity. It's increasing in what we know of his plan for the world. And far from God's judgment being sort of toned down as things move along in time, it's, it's actually indeed ratcheted up. And in the same way, his love and compassion and mercy and grace, the fullness of it towards all those who are in Christ, is yet to come. Well, a bit of a refresher as we turn to the book of Nahum this morning. If you would 
open up. If you don't have a Bible with you, I think you'll find, find it helpful to just track along. We're just going to go verse by verse through the third chapter of Nahum. You can find that on page 783 of the Pew Bible in front of you if you don't have a Bible with you. Well, a bit of a refresher. Nahum writes this book and addresses it to the southern kingdom of Judah. At this time, God's people are divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom of Israel has been taken off into exile by Assyria, and the southern kingdom of Judah remains. So Judah is the audience, but Nineveh is who the prophecy is concerning. And, and Nahum, his, his main message to Judah about Nineveh is that God is going to pour out his pent-up anger on Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. Now, you might wonder, why does that message go to Judah? Why doesn't Nahum go to Nineveh sort of like Jonah did previously and preach that message? Well, as we're going to see in the passage this morning, the, the different ways that Nineveh oppressed and lied to and killed people of other nations they did so in a way that was almost unimaginable. And Judah themselves were on the receiving end of such atrocities. And so this word of, of, of judgment on Nineveh, spoken to Judah, is actually going to serve as a word of comfort to them. A word of consolation. So our main idea this morning as we come to the passage, I think the overarching idea is this. God's judgment on Nineveh is certain. God's judgment on Nineveh is certain. And it's going to be certain in light of two realities. Number one, it's certain because of their sin. And then we'll see later, it's certain despite their strength. So let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 3 in Nahum. Nahum writes and speaks for the Lord, saying, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. And so at the outset of this chapter, we get breadcrumbs, as it were pointing us to the reasons that God is going to bring judgment on this nation. And the scene's not pretty. First, we see that Nineveh was a city founded on blood. The entire Assyrian Empire, in fact, would commonly boast about how gruesome their conquests were. I'll spare you reading some of the historical records that I went through this week. But in those records, the kings would boast of unspeakable atrocities. They would make sport of oppression and brutality. They would invent ways to execute people. Now, part of the reason that they would do these things is 
is in order to strike terror around to other nations. The, the remains of victims would be left out as a public spectacle for all who would pass by and they would see what happens to those who cross Assyria. Assyria was showing itself as the world's superpower. They knew it. And everybody else better get the same message. Well, in addition to this, we also see that they were a city filled with lies and plunder. For all who met the sword of the Assyrians, they would take anything and everything, all of the possessions of those who they defeated. So not only were these people filled with hate, but they were also filled with greed. They accumulated possession after possession, not by fair trade, but by murderous action. And this was really, in essence, how the entire society functioned. And Nineveh was the prime example. They gained their glory and wealth that they had founded on plunder and lies and murder and intimidation. Now we get a snapshot of the way that this actually looked in the way that Assyria related to God's people Judah in 2 Kings chapter 18. So I'm going to read a portion of this for you to just get a sense of what Judah was facing. Here in 2 Kings 18, a messenger for the king of Assyria comes and enters into Jerusalem of Judah and speaks a message for the king of Assyria. His name is the Rabshakeh. So the Rabshakeh comes to them and says, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. Hezekiah is the king of Judah at the time. For he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. And this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim and Hina and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the land has delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem? out of my hand. Well, we see here just the pompous pride of Assyria. 
in the message that the Rab Shakah delivers to Judah. And they're told if they would only surrender, then they would be given good things. And yet historical records note that oftentimes Assyria didn't make good on its promises. They would promise peace, and yet the people would surrender and they would still kill them. We'll skip down to verse 4 in chapter 3 with me. And here we'll see what's at the very heart of this sin. God says, And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and people with her charms. Here, Nineveh is described as a spiritual adulteress because ultimately their crimes against humanity, they didn't originate on a horizontal level. Their crimes against people originated on a vertical level. Nineveh, as we know from the previous messages, was, was first preached to by Jonah, and they repented of their sin. Hundreds of years before, they turned away and turned to worship God, and yet God looks at them now and says, no, you've turned away. You've not been faithful to me. At the very heart of this, as one theologian would put it, at the heart of every sin is the de-godding of God. Nineveh has repented of their repentance. They've grown powerful as a nation in human terms, but they've done it all without God. All by betrayal and murder and greed, serving their own idols. Well, what's coming for Nineveh? Back up to verse 2 with me. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the dead bodies. Immediately we're thrust forward into this battle scene in the future that Nahum sees. And Assyria is overwhelmed. They are losing men by the second in battle. And the armies of Nineveh are overtaken by the armies of another. This superpower is not seen as so powerful anymore. When who stands behind this? Verse 5, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will lift up your skirts over your face. I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? 
here in this, the Lord of the universe, the one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He stoops down from his throne and says to Nineveh, I am against you. I am your enemy. Remember the ways that you've treated all those other nations? Well, I'm about to deal with you in the same way. There's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to run. Your schemes and your murder stops now. Now, part of what makes this judgment so severe and deserved is that Nineveh had put their hand out against the Lord's people. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And he promises in that covenant that he would give him land, he would give him offspring, and he would give him blessing. And part of his promise to Abraham was that those who would dishonor you, I will curse, the Lord says. And so this word of judgment on Assyria, on Nineveh, serves as a comfort to Judah. Because it confirms in their mind that God himself is committed to keeping his promise to his people. I will not overlook the way that they are treating you. You know, this teaches us something about the character of God, doesn't it? That the Lord of glory, when he cares for his people, he means it. He's jealous and zealous for the love and the affection and the protection of his own. And when somebody sets themselves over against God's people, he takes notice. In fact, in other places in Scripture, we see that the ways that people were mistreated, the way that his people were mistreated, he identifies so closely with his people that he even says, you're doing that to me. God is jealous to protect his people. And that truth for Christians should actually give us a great deal of comfort. You think of movements in this world like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, who threaten Christians with terror and taking thousands of lives because of allegiance to Jesus. Well, the day of the Lord will come and he will execute vengeance on every unrepentant evildoer. Now that truth, far from disturbing us, should, should work in us an unshakable comfort in the Lord. And, and it doesn't undo our responsibility to pray for our enemies. We as Christians pray for our enemies. We pray 
rather than curse them. We pray that God would save them. We pray that God would open their eyes to see Jesus and turn away from their sins. But yet, simultaneously, we can also pray the prayer, God, make the wickedness stop. Put an end to this. Render judgment. May your justice come quickly. Well, God's judgment on Nineveh is certain because of their sin. But secondly, God's judgment on Nineveh is certain despite Nineveh's strength. And here, as we get into the next section of our passage, Nahum's going to take an event of Assyria's history, one of their greatest military feats, something that they would have certainly boasted about, and he's going to use it against them. Let's take a look. Verse 8. Nahum asks, Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile? With water around her, her rampart, a sea, a water, her wall. Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Well, Thebes, the city that we read about here, was a former rival to Nineveh. It was the capital of Egypt, which fell to the hands of the Assyrians around 663. So this happens before Nahum prophesies, and he refers to this incident and says, you're proud of that? Well, you're not any better. Thebes, much like Nineveh, was thought to be this impenetrable city. It was located deep in the heart of Egypt and protected by water on almost every side. And then even the side that wasn't protected by water was harsh terrain to cross. And so invading armies had little to no chance of being able to get to Thebes. And on top of this, it had military allies surrounding the city. Cush and Put and the Libyans are all named here, as well as Egypt, which is sort of the entire surrounding area. They were allies ready to intervene if ever Egypt's capital would be threatened. And yet, in 663, the impossible happened. Thebes did fall. And, and this, no doubt, would have been news for other nations. They would have heard about it. The word would have spread. And the conclusion likely would have been, nobody can mess with Assyria. Assyria is growing stronger and stronger and taking down the strongest. And they are making slaves out of everyone around. Verse 10, when Assyria sacked Thebes, it was 
business as usual for them. They treated their rivals with utter contempt. Verse 10, this is what happens to Thebes at the hands of Assyria. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, were lots were cast. And all her great men were bound in chains. As we mentioned earlier, Assyria committed unspeakable atrocities against their opponents. Far from being governed by any regard for the dignity of humanity, their tactics and practices were gruesome and brutal on every level. And they did this to strike terror to the surrounding nations, to to intimidate and to assert their power over other nations. And yet, as we're about to see, there's one whose power is not intimidated in the least. There's one who stands above this all, seeing it all, and who says, you will give an account. Now, I want you to remember as we go through the rest of this passage, how Nineveh themselves had just about every human advantage that you could imagine. They likewise had a strong military defense, gates that couldn't be breached, and a strong economy, as well as plunder from other countries, noblemen and governing authorities, and they even had other nations enslaved and serving them. And yet when it comes to standing before the judgment of God, none of these things were an advantage. Verse 11. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your force. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locusts. Multiply yourself like the locusts. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fence in a day of cold. And when the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. You also, Assyria, will be like Thebes, declares the Lord. 
My judgment is certain, despite your strength. Your fortresses, those are like little fig trees to me. Ripe fig trees. A little boy goes and shakes that, and the fruit comes down. Where I'm from, that's called easy pickings, y'all. Your troops, definitely not politically correct here, are like women. What we need to remember that is in that day, women weren't trained at all for combat. They were civilians. So it's a picture of, of not being ready for war. Your gates, your gates are wide open. It's as if the whole family's left the house and the front door is just open, inviting anyone to come in. Go ahead, draw water for the siege, make your bricks, strengthen your forts, multiply yourselves. But the Lord will devour you with an ungodly nation. Because the Lord himself has set himself against you. And the battle is over before it even begins. The last verse in the book of Nahum, verse 19. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous and all who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Nineveh, though persistent in their evil for generations, would finally be called to account. God the Lord had had enough. They had oppressed nations. Even more, they had been over and against his own people, and his anger is about to be poured out. And then the curtain closes. The word of the Lord is over. It won't be challenged. It's set in stone. And surely what God says will happen will come to pass. And it does. Roughly 100 years, Nineveh would fall to Babylon and the Medes coming and sacking the city. They would unite and succeed in their attack against Nineveh, causing so much destruction that the city would never be rebuilt. In fact, the remains of Nineveh weren't first discovered until around the 1800s. The Lord's judgment on Nineveh was certain. It was certain because of their sin, and it was certain despite their strength. Well, we've spent the last three weeks in the book of Nahum together as a church. And so in closing, I want us to have Four considerations as we close in thinking about the message of Nahum for us. Four practical applications or takeaways. So number one for us, what can we learn from this book? Number one, do not trust in resources. 
trust in a redeemer. Do not trust in resources, but trust in the redeemer. Nineveh was the world's power at the time. Military might, strong economy, nobles and politicians, strategic placement on the map. They had numerous nations indebted to them, serving them. But this did nothing to protect them against God's judgment. God shows no partiality. He will call every sin and sinner to account. He sees it all. He will call every person to stand before him, no matter their bank account, no matter their assets. Peasants and princes alike will stand before the Lord, the strong and the weak, the famous and the no-namers. We will all stand before the Lord to give an account of what we have done. And those who think themselves strong will not strut into God's throne room. You know, a pastor friend told me years ago about a man who was a devoted bodybuilder. This man owned his own gym and he competed for a number of years and won several bodybuilding contests. Well, there was a Christian who was in this man's gym who shared the gospel with him. And initially, the man rejected it upon first hearing. And when asked why and pressed, his answer was, well, if I were to believe that, that would imply that I'm weak. Well, a couple of years passed, and this bodybuilder one day was in his garage. And he suddenly collapses to the ground, unable to move, difficulty breathing, and he's rushed to the ER. And come to find out, he had an allergic reaction to an ant bite. A little tiny insect dropped this man who for years was working on being the toughest guy in the room. The best part of that story is that God used that to sober him. This man eventually did come to know Christ. He confessed his own weakness and his need to be forgiven. And he trusted in Jesus as his Savior. So my word for you this morning, if you're not walking with Jesus, if you're not trusting in him actively to be the one who rescues you before when you stand before God, if you haven't turned away from your sins, the Lord's word to Nineveh is the same word to you. Behold, I am against you. You see, we are all born naturally enemies of the Lord. It's in our nature. Nobody has to teach us how to sin. Nobody has to teach us how to rebel and shake our fists at the Lord. And we can do that either by moral atrocities like Nineveh, we can also run away from God by trusting in our own good works. 
and yet we persist in this manner. We stand before the Lord with our little toothpick sword and our paper plate shield thinking that that's going to help us. But that is the essence of insanity, y'all. If we're not on the Lord's side, we will be consumed. And the only way that we can be on the Lord's side is by trusting in the righteousness of another, sheltering ourselves behind the Redeemer, hiding behind His cross where He took the payment of sin for us. Trust in Jesus today if you don't know Him. Number two, don't live off of former spiritual successes. Keep growing today. Don't live off of former spiritual successes, but keep growing today. Nineveh, only one or two generations after repenting under the preaching of Jonah, turned back to the way that they were going. They humbled themselves under God's word, but then sooner rather than later, they were following idols again. Yeah, I've heard it put like this before, describing the drift of Christianity throughout generations. One generation cherishes and preaches the gospel. The next generation assumes the gospel. And the following generation rejects the gospel. You hear that and you think, well, I don't know. Consider this mission statement from a rather, rather well-known institution here in America. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the end of his life and study that it is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. That's Harvard University. 1636. Needless to say, they are far from that today. We must pay much closer attention, y'all, lest we drift from the course that the Lord has set before us, lest we fall away with an evil, unbelieving heart, lest we turn away from the truth that's been once for all delivered to the saints that we not assume the gospel, but that we teach it carefully up here and to one another, that we not drift away and live off of past spiritual successes. Nor perhaps more subtly, rather than the temptation of apostasy, maybe just simply the temptation to, to coast off of past spiritual accomplishments. You know, maybe you had a time in your life where you were hungry for God's Word. 
zealous in your evangelism, ready and eager to hear God's direction in your life. But now, well, there's just kind of other cares pressing in. It could just be plain busyness, or it could be thinking that, you know, I've kind of paid my dues. I think it's time for a little me time now. It'd feel good to be served for once. But y'all, the path of faith the Lord tells us in John 15 is that we remain in Him. We must remain in the Lord. We're to abide in Him daily, continually. Apart from Him, we're told we can do nothing. We must remain in the Lord. Perhaps you've been through a season where even you've served the church for years. And maybe the feeling is, you know, I really feel like I've paid my dues. It's time for somebody else to step up to the plate. I think I see the finish line. I think I'll coast in from here. Y'all, but how much better? How much sweeter would it be to be able to say with Paul, on our very deathbed, that we would be able to utter the same words that he did. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. May we be those who say that very same thing. Number three. Do not be proud, but fear. Do not be proud, but fear. Note the kindness of God in delivering Judah and the severity of God towards Nineveh. We're told of this same kindness and severity in Romans chapter 11. Paul, in reflecting on the way that unbelieving Israel was cut off, because of their unbelief. And yet, he writes to a collection of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and he says, but, but you, you stand fast through faith. And his very next words are, so do not be proud, but fear. Far from provoking pride of place or any sort of sense of superiority, the reality that Christians stand fast through faith ought to have a humbling effect on our lives. It brings us low before God. We rejoice, certainly, before Him, but we rejoice with trembling. We realize and we acknowledge that there is no room for boasting among God's people. There is no room for boasting in Christ's church. For what do we have that we haven't received already? What do we have that wasn't given to us in the first place? Even the faith that we possess 
we're told, was a gift. And those truths sink deep into our hearts and, and humble us before the Lord. The only boast, the only boasting that we're allowed to do is in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Number four, do not despair, but be comforted. Do not despair, but be comforted. Judah had long felt the weight and the pain that came from the oppression of Assyria. And God promised that he would deal with them. And God did. Y'all, for us as Christians, we must be ever mindful that God himself will be the one who settles all accounts. And what that does is it should liberate you. It should liberate you from feeling like you've got to take things into your own control. Like you're the one who distributes justice. Hear this from Romans 12. Paul writes, Beloved, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself. Never, never, never avenge yourself. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. God says, get your hands off of it. You don't know what to do with vengeance. That's mine. That belongs to me and me alone. I am the one who is all wise. I am the one who knows all things. I'm the one who has the power to execute things in my timing. I am the one who is personally affronted and sinned against in every sense. I know precisely what to do with it. Their evil has come up before me, and I know every bit of it. And yet I have purposes of when and how I will bring final judgment. That's not for you to know. But you can rest assured, Christian, that it will come because he is good, because he is jealous, and because he is faithful to what he has promised us. And we also know that while there is plenty of earthly wickedness in this world, we know ultimately there is the wicked one. The evil one, Satan himself, who is the deceiver and the accuser of God's people behind every sort of evil that goes on in this 
world. And we long for the day. We wait for the day when he will finally be overthrown, cast into outer darkness, thrown into the lake of fire with his angels, and finally crushed and finally defeated under the feet of Christ and his people. And y'all, the good news of the gospel is the truth that the Lord himself does not reign like Satan reigned. Satan reigned like Nineveh reigned. Lies, deceit, murder, hatred. The kingdom of Christ is utterly antithetical to it. Our Lord, the Messiah Jesus, reigns in truth. Our Lord, the Messiah Jesus, reigns in justice. And the way that he established his kingdom is not by oppression. He established his kingdom by coming and giving himself. By humbling himself to such a degree that he would clothe himself with flesh. By humbling himself to such a degree that he would be subject to the point of death, even death on a cross, bearing the weight of the sins that you and I deserve and what we've committed, and he says, I'm going to take that into my own body on the tree. There, Christ was treated as a sinner. He died a sinner's death though he had never sinned. And he did that so that you and I could be treated forever excellently and be called beloved by God the Father. He did that to establish a kingdom of power that will never end. It will go on forever. He will reign forever. Susan Pollock was born in Hungary in 1930. She and her families were victims of the Nazi treatment in World War II. Her father was taken from her, never to be seen again when she was a child. And by the time the war had ended, she had 50 extended family members who were lost because of their treatment in the concentration camp. She herself spent time in a labor camp and remained there for several years. And before the war, the war was over, she was one of the many Jews who were sent on a death march. Her direction was towards Bergen-Belsen. There she malnourished, underclothed, weak and weary, walked for hundreds of miles. Many people never made it. She described it as an endless journey across frozen fields. Well, after a few days or weeks of arriving at the camp in Bergen-Belsen, she was convinced that she was dying. 
And she herself started to crawl from her hut in order to die away from the rest of the living people in the camp to, to prevent the spread of disease. Well, as she was crawling to what she thought was her death, she recounts and says that suddenly I felt somebody gently picking me up. I didn't know who it was, but I do remember that something had changed. I was being treated with kindness. British troops had finally arrived at the camp, and the war was over. And y'all, in the same way, there will be a day for everyone who has put their faith in Christ. There will be a day when the Lord comes to us and he picks us up. And he assures us and has the same words. The war is over. Rest. Enter into the joy of your master. He will treat us with everlasting kindness. All the suffering is done. All the pain, all the wrongs, all the sin, all the abuse, all the wickedness, all the atrocities, all the cancer, all the lying, all the cheating, all the stealing, it's gone. Enter into the joy and the love of your master. Know me and enjoy me forever. We pray that that day comes soon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for every word that you have spoken to us in your word. Lord, how sweet and comforting it is to know that your judgment is perfect and your grace is magnificent. Lord, help us to trust all the more in our Lord Jesus. Help us to see your control and sovereign plan and trust that you will work all things for good. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.